all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Rahi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And the child Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not dis displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says, you do. Do as she tells you, for though I, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I shall <clears throat> make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because, you are, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. We'll see how that works. I'm sorry. I don't know why that's so difficult this morning. <clears throat> and thank you to, the, to my readers there. I just figured it'd be fun to do something a little different with such a long and, and uh, uncomfortable at different points passage. Genesis begins with the creator God fashioning a good world and filling it with good things to be enjoyed and wisely managed by human beings. But the first people were tricked by a spiritual being disguised as a serpent to violate the Lord's commands and are kicked out of God's garden. Adam and Eve wandered in exile, their kingdom stolen from them. And the first chapters of Genesis that we looked at last fall describe the ballooning evil chaos and death that result from that. It just keeps getting worse and worse. And what is the creator's solution to all this mess? 
We, as modern Westerners, have been trained by our culture to expect a big, flashy, quick response to evil. That's what our movies and our comic books and everything else kind of teach us to expect. There's a killer asteroid speeding towards planet Earth. We blow it up with our nukes. There's a dark lord threatening our galaxy or school or whatever else, our shire, and we defeat him over the course of several films, and so on and so on. And those are good stories. And there is some truth to that. But Genesis tells us that that is not generally the way that Yahweh chooses to work in the world. As Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or a small household lamp or leaven in the dough. It is small, slow, and hard sometimes to see. And God's response to the chaos of sin in Genesis is a call for faithfulness and a call for babies. He chose Abraham to head up a new family in Genesis chapter 12, a tribe for all the tribes, and basically gave him the same set of instructions that he'd given to Adam and Eve back in chapter 1. Be faithful to the role I've granted you and have babies. God is on the move to put things right, to fight for his people, to teach them his ways, but not all at once and not in the order that we would have chosen. Abraham and Sarah's lives were dominated by promises. They got a lot of promises from God, but that also meant that their lives were dominated by a lot of waiting on God's promises. The promise of a son given to them was fulfilled, but decades after Yahweh first gave it. I think there's at least about 10 years that transpire between the two readings that we just did, between Genesis 16 and Genesis chapter 21. We all know how terrible it is to have to wait on things. Nobody particularly enjoys it, especially in our modern age where most of the things we want are just a few clicks away. And consider how much time Bible characters spend just waiting. You add it all up, hundreds of years. We forget sometimes that the stories we actually find in Scripture are sort of the highlight reel. I mean, not that everything that happens is good, but it's just all the interesting bits, right? Like there's not very many chapters about Abraham and Sarah sat around again and raised their animals and ate and slept and then they did it again day in and day out. We don't get a lot of that. The Lord must do that on purpose. I don't think it's an accident that his people must often wait. And there's a common saying that good things come to those who wait. I think that's true. I think Abraham would agree though I believe he would change it to God's kingdom comes to those who wait. And that's not a lesson that Abraham and Sarah learned all at once. And perhaps they could only have said that at the end of their long lives, after many hard lessons. And our passage this morning, or passages really this morning, the story is one of those in Genesis 16 and a portion of 21. A tale of impatience, mistreatment, and failure. Can you imagine if your family failures were so notorious that folks were still getting together 3,000 years later to talk about you in public? Can you imagine that? Think about that. It's hard to imagine. But it's true for the first family of faith. Here we are talking about it again. They made statues and paintings and musicals and all these kinds of things. But I think there's a lot of wisdom for us in that. 
Part of what this is telling us is that family failures, as awful and as painful as they may be, are part of God's redemptive work in the world. They're included in what he's doing. Not that he wants them to happen, but that God has redemptive purposes for us in that. And it's good to remember that these stories that we find in Genesis were likely passed down word of mouth. They were stories that were told orally for many, many years before Moses ever wrote them down. And I think the most likely candidates for whoever told them first were probably Abraham and Sarah themselves. Admitting our failures, repenting of what we've done, is also a part of God's redemption. And really what this whole thing is about and is instigated by is that Abraham and Sarah are scheming to speed up what Yahweh has promised, right? Here we sit, there is no sun yet, let's go ahead and take a shortcut. And it's strange for us as we read this story that Sarah, well, had a slave at all, but that Sarah had a slave and then that she gave Abraham her slave to become a wife of his. This was a common practice at the time. Not saying it's good, not saying it's bad, but that the oddness, the, the badness in the story doesn't lie there. Ancient minds would have read that and been like, well, yes, of course, that's what you do in that kind of a situation. Hagar's son would legally be reckoned as belonging to Sarah and Abraham, generally. So like I said, to the ancient mind, the mistreatment did not lie in Abraham and Hagar's relations, but rather in the way in which Sarah then mistreated her, abused her, drove her out, and Abraham basically did nothing. That was legally his son. And he stands by and lets these things happen. When Yahweh chose Abraham to be the father of a new human family, one of the things he promised was that all the nations of the earth would find blessing in Abraham's family, in his offspring. And Abraham and Sarah, all of their descendants, the whole family, were to live a blessing life. That's the title of the sermon this morning, and maybe you were confused by that, because normally we say the blessed life, the blessed life, right? No, no, the blessing life. When people use the word blessed nowadays, and it's not super outside of church, I feel like generally they mean, you know, that you got really lucky, or that you got something that you really wanted, or that you looked really good in a social media post, or you got to ride on a yacht, or whatever, right? And then people say, oh, I'm so blessed, you know. It's like, ah, that's, that's not what that means. I mean, good for you. You got to ride on a yacht. <clears throat> but in the Bible, I think, and there's more to this, but for our purposes this morning, when the Bible speaks of blessing, it talks about happiness that you've been given, that you're meant to turn around and share with others. That's what a blessing is. That's what it means to be blessed. It's never meant to stop with you. Yahweh gives the blessings he gives so that his people can turn right around and include other people in that. And Abraham and Sarah do do this occasion, you know, it's not that they fail the whole time, we do see this happen with them. But this is definitely a time where they did not live the blessing life. We think to the life of Jesus, the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000, right? Multitudes, thousands of hungry people are all around him. The Lord Jesus took a few loaves of bread, he blessed it, it says in the Gospels, and then he handed it to his disciples, they handed it to everybody else. Lo and behold, there was enough for everybody to eat. That is the promise and power of living the blessing life. The disciples did not say, oh, hey, thanks, Jesus, that's awesome, a fish sandwich, and then keep it. They turned right around and they handed it to everybody else. In this middle section in Genesis, we see Abraham and Sarah several times fail to be a blessing to the nations. 
and not just fail to be a blessing to the nations, they actually bring curses to the nations that they interact with. And we see this in their stay in Egypt, their stay in the Canaanite city of Gerar, and here with Hagar, an Egyptian slave woman. Abraham and Sarah are not carriers of blessing to these people, but carriers of curse. Yahweh, I think, blessed Hagar, made promises directly to her because Abraham and Sarah had failed to do so on his behalf. And I think this is how this all comes together for us, kind of what I was convicted about speaking about this morning. And I'm very ready, personally, to stop talking about COVID-19 and praise Jesus that it does seem like an end is in sight. But the virus will remain a large presence in our memory, in our health, in our politics, in our prayers for a while. And I don't think that the coronavirus was a judgment from God, meaning a punishment for our sins. Jesus took the punishment for sin on the cross. That business is finished. But I do think that the coronavirus was a judgment from God in terms of a test. In the Bible, Clayton will will, uh, deal with this more next week, and I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but the Bible teaches us that Yahweh tests his people. He puts choices before us, not to punish us, not to catch us red-handed. A lot of people have the idea of God that he's just waiting with a big hammer for you to do something that you're not supposed to do, and wham, you know, gotcha. No, 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 that's not the idea. He gives us tests as opportunities for faith, for courage, to do the right thing, to grow in righteousness, to give of ourselves. That's why he tests his people. So I really do think that the pandemic has been a trial, and it is a trial, a test, for families, for churches, for states, for countries, and for everything in between. 1 Peter 4 says that judgment begins with the household of God. I think he meant that in two ways. On the one hand, that God holds us, his people, to a higher standard than the people who are far from him or have nothing to do with him. And I also think that means that the world watches us, the people who claim to know Christ, for, to see the true measure of our character and witness. They may be biased against us, I don't really want to get into that, but they watch us, they watch churches. The people you know who know you're a Christian watch how you react to things. And I think there's been a lot of good that has been brought to light through this period of testing. Several of you donated your stimulus checks last spring to the church so that the deacons could then take that money and help other members in need. That is exactly what a blessing is. Many of us, all of us, I think at some point, have abided by a virus rule that we personally thought was silly, but the unity of the, of the church, the health of our neighbors, was more important to us. That's good. That's a blessing. We passed that test in that way. We were able to serve over 30 Thanksgiving dinners to individuals and families isolated by the pandemic. That was good. We passed that test. All these things were blessings. But great darkness, I think, has been revealed as well. Not only in us, but in the church as a whole. What selfishness has been revealed in many of our hearts? I don't want to do that. What rebellion has been found 
in us. You can't make me. What anger towards one another. Fearfulness. Oh my goodness, it's going to kill me. We have mimicked Abraham and Sarah in many ways. Impatience, contempt, passivity, mistreatment, selfishness, fear, rage. And I don't say any of this to condemn any of you. God is gracious toward our failure. And the point of failing a test from the Lord is not that now we receive punishment or that now he's finished with us, but that now we know the measure of our need. The doctors cannot help you if they do not know the real nature and extent of your affliction. And how do they find out? They run tests. In the same way, we cannot pray or serve or worship rightly if we do not acknowledge how we have done wrong and repent of it. And Genesis 16 and 21 point to two common pitfalls of everybody, but including people of faith. And they're both related. Acting selfishly and believing selfishly. And the first sin that we must repent of is simply acting selfishly. And God wants his people to live the blessing life. And that means a life that fights against Selfishness. Everybody struggles with selfishness in different ways. It's hard not to. So much of just how our bodies are made are just keyed into keeping this body alive, not necessarily your bodies. So even on a biological level, we have to fight against some things. And take Abraham and Sarah's predicament and map it onto your own life for a moment. What are you waiting for? Does you feel like you've been promised? And maybe you have been, or that you feel like you deserve. What promises of God have yet to really materialize in your life? You see other people have these things, or experience these things, or be released from these things. Why not me? And how have you tried, and and perhaps you haven't, and that's good, but how have you tried to speed things up like Abraham and Sarah did? Paul says in Galatians 5, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your fleshly desires. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. I think the fleshly desires Paul references are not just lust but fear, anger, power-grabbing, greed. It was fleshly desire that sapped Sarah of trust and drove her to try and fill God's promise on her own. Jesus says that those who try to save their lives will lose it, while those willing to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel will save it. And there are days that I fear he was serious when he said that. And Jesus was given chances to cut corners, to speed things up. Three chances, and they were all from the hand of the devil. Turn some rocks into bread, throw yourself off the roof of the temple and force God's hand. 
pledge allegiance to me and become ruler of the world without having to suffer any pain. And Jesus refused. I don't think he just refused then when the actual temptations were happening. I think that probably happened throughout the rest of his public career. I think he refused every day and gave his life as a blessing for us all. Despite all the failures and mistakes of the Hebrew people, all of the nations are finding blessing in Abraham's offspring, Jesus the Messiah. God's kingdom comes to those who wait, and I urge you to continued faithfulness and patience, brothers and sisters, in the different things that you are waiting for. Do not hoard God's blessings for yourself, but live in such a way that your family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, enemies share in those blessings. The second sin I think we must repent of is believing selfishly. Believing that God's kindness, concern, and provision are only extended to us. And each of us will probably fill in a different us. Americans, Christians, evangelical Christians, conservatives, liberals, It goes on and on and on and on. It is the all too common error of believing that Jesus happens to agree with my opinions. Sarah and Abraham may have felt entitled to treat Hagar this way because they were the creator's chosen ones and she was merely a slave. Who was Hagar in the grand scheme of things next to Abraham and Sarah? Well, Hagar is the first person in the scripture to name the creator. God tells other characters different names of his, but Hagar is the first one to say, you are, for her, you are the living one who sees me. You are the God of seeing, El-Rahi. Yahweh had seen her trouble. She had seen his kindness. This God who had chosen Abraham, who had made promises to Abraham, but who had paid attention to Sarah's mistreated slave woman as well, made promises to her and blessed her too. Sometimes people think that God only cares for his own people, and usually it's God's people who think that. But this story, and many like it throughout the Old Testament, widens our perspective and reminds us that Yahweh is at work beyond his chosen people. He doesn't just pay attention to the folks in church. They may not know it, they may not want to know it, but every human is known to the Creator. He is up to something in every person's life. And part of our responsibility as Christ's ambassadors is to get to know them enough to see how he is working, draw their attention to it, and then tell them that the good news of Jesus is what God's work in their life has been leading up to. In chapter 16, verse 2, we're told, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. This is a formulaic sentence. So-and-so listened to the voice of, you know, whoever. It appears throughout the Old Testament. Genesis, it's usually a clue that something's not right. Whenever someone listens to the voice of anyone but Yahweh, which is good, but whenever it's someone else, so-and-so listened to not Yahweh, Disaster is the result. And the point is not that husbands shouldn't listen to their wives. 
but rather that we should listen to no one whose word is contrary to God's will, even if they're as beloved as a spouse. And consider the things that you watch, the things that you read, the things that you listen to. Do these programs, persons, personalities encourage you to live the blessing life, to take a lively and loving interest in others, even if they're very different, to willingly lay down your life so that others may live? If not, then brothers and sisters, why are we tuning in? Christ's people should give absolutely zero airtime to anything that intentionally stokes fear and anger rather than blessing and generosity. We must repent of our selfish beliefs before the God who sees and has concern for every person. And I'll close with an adapted quote from 19th century preacher Thomas Guthrie. Guthrie says, I pray you, I plead with you to cultivate the temperament that was in Jesus Christ. How can a follower of the Lamb rage like a roaring lion? How can a pardoned criminal sit moping with a cloud over their brow? How can an heir of heaven, destined to a cosmic crown, be vexed and fretted by some petty loss? How can one in whose heart the dove of heaven is nestling be full of all manner of bile and spite? Oh, let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus, a kind, hospitable, gentle, loving temperament presents one of the most winning features of Christian faith, and by its silent and softening influence, you will do more real service to Christ than by the loudest professions or the exhibition of a cold and skeletal orthodoxy. Church, may we live the blessing life, acting and believing in accord with the mind of Christ as we await his promised kingdom. In his name, amen.